Well, every person here has had a, a desire at one time or another to accomplish a major goal or fulfill some sort of big dream. Now, maybe for some of you, it's the promotion to your dream job, that one that you've been working for and waiting for your entire life. For others, maybe it's the dream of scoring that winning touchdown or winning the Olympic gold for your country. We all have dreams. We all have aspirations. We all have those big goals that we set in our life, many that begin in childhood. I know for me, it was always a, as a kid... I would run around in my front yard counting down three, two, one, and then launching that half-court shot, pretending it was the championship game. That was what I did. That was my dream. We all have those major dreams, major moments in our life that we hope for and that we long for, and often we even work toward those dreams. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the life of a character who was finally fulfilling that moment in their life, that big dream that they had after years and years of waiting, something that they were looking for probably from the time of childhood. But little did this person know the moment that they were waiting for and longing for and dreaming about was about to be interrupted. God was about to invade that moment, and not only was it going to be the biggest moment of this person's life, but little did he know this marked the biggest moment in the history of the world. This Interruption was the first step in the greatest moment in all of history. We're going to be looking at the story of Zechariah this morning. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. As you are turning there this morning, I just want to let you know we're kicking off a new Christmas series. I mentioned at the beginning of the service with snow. It's, it's a timely uh, time to have it start snowing because we're hopefully starting to feel like Christmas a little bit in here. And uh, we're going through a series called Heard on High. And this series is essentially an, an examination of every moment in the birth narrative of Jesus where a, an angel delivers some sort of message. And we're going to focus on what the hearers of that message, how they responded. That's our Christmas series. So this morning, we're going to begin by looking at Zechariah. Next week, uh, we're going to look at the message that Mary heard. The following week, which is going to be actually Christmas Eve, that's going to be the message that Joseph heard. And then on Christmas morning, we're going to see the message that the shepherds heard. So this is our series. And as we jump into Luke's gospel this week, I just want to bring some context. Now, this past fall, we went through this big series called Jesus in the Old Testament. And if you were here, you saw that we gave these major, big Old Testament stories and pictures and examples. And we showed how all these things pointed forward to the coming Messiah, to Jesus. And we covered a lot of big promises and a lot of big characters, didn't we? But we didn't get them all, not even close. We didn't begin to even scratch the surface of all that God's Word says. And so one of the things that we see at the very end of the Old Testament, there's a very obscure promise that we find in the last couple verses of the entire Old Testament. In the book of Malachi, which is the last uh, prophetic book of the Old Testament, at the very end there is a message that God gives to Malachi. And this is what it says in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so God gives this strange promise talking about Elijah coming onto the scene, pointing people, turning people's hearts toward the Messiah, toward something. We have this strange, obscure promise, and then the way it works is essentially God goes silent 
for 400 years. This is the very last utterance that we get from God's prophets. No voice of God for 400 long years. And so the people are waiting. Anticipation is building. They're looking forward to the coming Messiah during these 400 silent years. Now, because they're 400 silent years, I know at least for me growing up, I always thought this is a a period of time in 400 years where nothing happened. God was silent, so pretty much everybody just chilled for 400 years. That's not at all what happened. Just because God was silent doesn't mean that history was silent. In fact, this is one of the most monumental moments in Israel's history. This is, for those of you who know um, people who celebrate Hanukkah, this is, these stories come from this moment, this 400-year period of time. We call it, biblically, the intertestamental period. And what happened during this 400 years of silence, there was political unrest and violence and turmoil throughout this period of time. First of all, the people of Israel in the land of Palestine, power at the end of the Old Testament was in Persian rule. But over time, the Persians ended up being defeated and it ended up becoming Greek rule. We know a guy named Alexander the Great came and he started conquering all this massive area in the ancient world and one of the areas he conquered was Palestine and so because of that we see all this Hellenization this Greek language and information moving into Israel this is why the New Testament we read is in Greek the original language it's no longer in Hebrew because Greek culture spread into Israel so during this time we see it goes from Persian rule to Greek rule and eventually the Greeks are defeated by the Romans this is under Pompeii and 63 BC and so we see these people who want to be this independent nation, who once had this great King David and all this line of kings, and now they're under rule by all these great powers. Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans now. And these people are groaning. They want their liberation. They want their freedom. They don't want to have this oppressive rule. They want their deliverance. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. And even though they have this relative freedom, which means that the temple is rebuilt and even under this period of time the temple was expanded uh, during the time of Jesus and so they were able to worship freely they still are longing for God to fulfill his promises and the words of Malachi the very last words would be ringing in their ears during this point in history Elijah is going to come and he's going to turn the hearts of the people God is about to break that silence in our story we're going to see it happen So let's go ahead and open to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 5 through 7 to begin. And just a reminder, once again, uh, use the seatback Bibles in front of you. Also, you can use our app, our Frankenmuth Bible Church app, to fill out any sermon notes. You can use the paper copy, too, if you'd like. And if you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take one of our seatback Bibles home with you. That's our gift to you, free of charge. So we're going to look now at Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. We're going to jump in. God is breaking his silence. God is going to be speaking. We're going to see this in a few moments. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. So the first thing we're going to focus on in our outline this morning is the dilemma. The dilemma, verses 5 through 7. In fact, as we read these opening verses, there's actually more than one dilemma we're going to see here in the beginning of the story. The first dilemma has to do with the king, and the second dilemma has to do with a priest. Now, the king who is in power at this time is the infamous King Herod the Great. Now, we know quite a bit about Herod the Great. One of the things that's most common or 
most commonly known, if you read history books about Herod the Great, was this guy was really well known for construction projects. He was the one who expanded the temple. He was the one who really did all that work at Masada, or if you've ever been to Israel and seen the Herodium, just amazing stuff that King Herod the Great did that's still there. You can still see it today. So that's maybe what he's most known for, but also he's known for being incredibly ruthless. Herod proclaimed himself to be a Jew, but by most accounts the people thought that this was just something that he did to use as some sort of convenient political ploy to try to get the favor of the people by proclaiming that he was this pious Jew. Herod was considered a puppet king of Rome, which meant he was technically in control of all of Judea, but really who was pulling the strings? It was Rome. He was in bed with them, and so the way it worked is essentially everybody looked at him as a traitor. And even though he's given the title king of the Jews, the people do not embrace Herod the Great as the king. And so because of this, he's always trying to find ways to secure power. I was doing a little study of Herod the Great as we was preparing for this message, and I heard that there was a saying back then that the people would say, it's safer to be one of the king's pigs than to be one of his sons. Because pig was, uh, a pig was no threat to his throne. His sons were, and so Herod was so ruthless, he would wipe out family members with not even batting an eye. So we see the first dilemma that's taking place here in our story is we have a king who is on the throne of Israel who is not in favor of the coming Messiah. He's not in favor of the one that all these people are waiting for. And if you know the whole story, which I'm not going to cover this morning, Herod the Great is the one who vehemently tried to wipe out the Messiah by killing those babies. So he did not want the Messiah to come. That's our first dilemma. But the second dilemma comes from a man named Zechariah. Now, according to our passage, Zechariah is a priest in Israel at this time. And based on what we read in our text, he's a very ordinary yet godly man. If you read a little later in the book of Luke, in the first chapter, in fact, toward the end, we discover Zechariah. He's from the hill country of Judea, which means he probably lived in one of these little villages somewhere on the hillside, small community of people that he lived and and engage with regularly. At the same time, it also says in verse 5 of our text that he's of the division of Abijah. What this means is there are these different factions of priests who are in Israel at this time. He happens to be associated with one called Abijah. And what would take place is they would live wherever in Israel, but two different times throughout the year. Well, probably a little more than that, but two specific times throughout the year, Abijah, that whole, all the priests who were connected to Abijah would travel to Jerusalem and for one week, two different times a year, their job was to serve in the temple. Now, the way we see in, in reading history books and understanding some of the specific context of what was going on at this time, there were actually 23 other divisions. So he was one of 24. And two different times throughout the year, these different divisions would all travel to Jerusalem and they would be working full time for one week. And then the rest of their year would kind of be their own time to be in their own village and serving and living and, and doing whatever they can to make a living there. And so we read that this is the group he's connected to. Also, we read that he's married to a woman named Elizabeth. And Elizabeth happens to be from the sons of Aaron. She is a, a Levite, which means she has a priestly background. This would be a blessing for Zechariah. And also, according to our passage, they're very pious. They love God. They want to serve him and, and follow him. In fact, it says that they walk blamelessly. And so we have a very good picture of a really great family. This couple was great, but they have a greater problem. Elizabeth is barren. They can't have children. And not only that, they're advanced in age, which means there's no hope that they could have children. 
Now, for some people here, this is a sensitive issue. I know I've encountered many people through life that have wrestled with the, the challenge of never able, not, not, not being able to have children of their own, and that can be a, a challenging and difficult and heart-wrenching thing. And as difficult as that is, I need to say that in the ancient Near East and in this culture, this would have been significantly more challenging because not only are the people desperately desiring to have children, but the culture around them would look down upon them. It would be shameful if you were unable to have children. For Elizabeth, she had brought reproach on the family because now this family line is ending with them. Zechariah and Elizabeth do not have a child. They cannot continue to pass on this lineage. And so this would be a really big deal. This is a major dilemma for this couple. And I'm sure that countless times throughout the course of their life, Zechariah and Elizabeth, in tears, would pray and ask God, please, God, give us this child. Give us a child. We so desperately want to have a baby. And God never granted that request. Oftentimes, however, God's apparent silence in the midst of our petition is only because he has far greater plans than we can possibly imagine. And in our circumstances, we focus on what's going on presently. God has the big picture. God knows. We shouldn't be discouraged in our prayer, even if God's not answering. We shouldn't doubt what God is doing. He may not always operate according to our plans, but his plan is unfailing. Amen? God's plans are unfailing, his power is unstoppable, his love for us is undeniable, and if you ever doubt that, just remember the cross. So let's keep reading. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. Now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. It's talking about Zechariah. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So the next thing we're going to focus on in our text is the duty. Verses 8 through 10. You see, it just so happened that this was a period of time, one of the two weeks throughout the year, that Zechariah was part of this whole group of people, this division of Abijah, that were called to Jerusalem to serve in the temple. So at this point in history, he has now went from the hill country all the way to Jerusalem to help serve. And while he is there in one of those weak periods of time, what they do is they do a thing where they cast lots. This is kind of like a, a random thing where they'll pick and decide who is to serve. And he is randomly chosen to serve. Now, I want to give you a, a sense of how, how significant this is. The way it worked was every morning and evening, one priest would go in and he would offer the incense. He would go and take fire and he would lay it before the altar of incense and he would burn the incense and that would happen in the morning and evening. And so it just so happened that Zechariah's lot got cast, got picked, and so he was the one to do it. And to give you a sense of how rare this is, just know that between all the divisions of the priesthood, it's estimated that there were 18,000 priests who would serve the temple. 18,000. And so each priest, they only are allotted one opportunity in their entire life that they can be picked to serve by going into the temple and offering the incense by burning it and, and having the incense go up. And so many priests throughout their entire career, they never were picked. They never had the opportunity to go into the temple and to burn incense before the Lord. And so for Zechariah, imagine this. Your entire life, you're connected to the priesthood. You look forward to this ministry that you have, and the greatest thing you can aspire to is to be the one chosen by lot to go into the temple to take the fire and to offer 
this incense, to, to burn it before the Lord. This is the thing you've been waiting for. This is the biggest moment in your career. This is the biggest moment in your life. And not only that, the whole nation of Israel is looking to you spiritually at this moment to fulfill, to fulfill your duty before the Lord. This is a big deal for Zechariah. This is the equivalent of Zechariah going, three, two, one, right? This is his big moment. Being a priest, this is what he dreamed about his entire life. This is a big, big deal. And notice how our text says all these people are waiting outside and they're praying. I want you to know this is not a trivial matter. If you read through the Old Testament, get to a few chapters, for example, Numbers 16 or Leviticus 10, there's several different occasions where someone would go in and they would offer or they would burn the incense before the Lord in an unworthy manner of some kind. And they'd be struck dead instantly. And so this is a pretty weighty responsibility. And so the people are standing outside and they're praying. And the protocol would be the priest would go in and he would take uh, this, this fire, which was just in the courtyard outside of the temple, and he would walk into the sanctuary area, the holy place, and he would bring the fire and he would have the incense in hand, and he would dump the incense out, and then he would light that, and burn the incense before the Lord. And customarily, the priest would also be in there, and he would be praying. You see, what, what the Old Testament would teach is that as the incense went up before the Lord, this is symbolic of the prayers of God's people rising up to him. And so the people outside would be praying, and the priest inside would also be praying, and customarily they'd be praying for redemption for the nation of Israel. This is probably what the priests who entered would pray. So this whole thing was a pretty... Big symbol, a big picture, huge responsibility. And I'm sure for Zechariah, not only is this exciting, but it's probably terrifying, right? And if he goes in some, some sort of un, unworthy way, he's going to be struck down. So not only is he excited, it's a big moment, but he's also a little scared. And we're going to see it's going to get even more intense in just a moment. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. It says, There appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. We're going to see number three here, the decree. The decree. In the midst of this very intense moment for Zechariah, an angel appears out of nowhere and freaks him right out. Now, guys, I don't know about you, but I'm not easy to scare. If I go to like a haunted house, you know, all that spooky stuff, walking through a graveyard at night, that stuff doesn't scare me. I'm fine with that. But if you startle me, I will get scared. That happens occasionally. For me, the biggest uh, moment where I get startled happens to be in the middle of the night. I don't know why, but my kids often, this happens quite regularly, will quietly tiptoe in the middle of the night down the stairs and then come up to my bed and put their faces right next to mine quietly. And I'll wake up and see a face there, and I almost punch my kids all the time. It freaks me right out. I mean, I get freaked out in those moments. It surprises me. And so for Zechariah, not only does he have this understanding that, hey, I could be struck down dead, but then all of a sudden a figure appears. There's supposed to be nobody else in there. And a figure appears on the right side of the altar, and this dude is freaked right out. In fact, we know the appearance of angels regularly freaks people out. And so Zechariah is there and he's scared. And we understand exactly why he would be so scared, why he would be so afraid. 
And immediately we see this angel reassure Zechariah that he will not be harmed, he doesn't need to be afraid, and the angel gives him a message, a decree. Now this is common practice for angels. They often are met with fear, they often reassure the person who's afraid, and then they give a message. And one of the reasons we know that when we see angels in the Bible and they give messages, and why this is such a, something so common, is because the very name angel means messenger. In Greek, the word angelos, which is where we get angel, that means messenger. And in Hebrew, the word malach, which means angel, is also messenger. So this is what they do. They are messengers of the Lord, and they deliver a message. And notice specifically the decree that this angel gives to Zechariah. He says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now what's unique about this message? First, it's the fact that this is an impossible promise, isn't it? This is impossible. There's no way they can have a child. It's physically impossible for them to have children. They are too old, and Sarah has been, or not Sarah, sorry, that's the wrong person who's barren. Elizabeth has been barren. It's impossible for them to have a child. That's the first problem. But secondly, notice how the angel refers to Zechariah's prayer. Now, we can't be entirely sure about this because it doesn't say in the text. And I never try to over-speak into a situation where the text is silent. But it's hard for me to believe that Zechariah would go into the temple, this biggest day of his life, the most monumental moment, knowing the gravity of what he was doing for the nation of Israel as he was entering in there to, to fulfill this great duty. It's hard for me to imagine that he would go into the temple in this situation and go, hey God, I really hope that you give me a baby. I mean, he's liable to get struck down dead. Remember that. I would envision that his, his role of a priest, he probably would be praying for the same thing that everybody else prayed for, the redemption of Israel. That's what I would guess. And that's a great responsibility. So outwardly, I believe that he's fulfilling the task that God has given him and he's praying the normal prayer. God, fulfill your promises that you made for the Messiah. Redeem your people, Israel. This is the outward prayer I'm assuming that he prayed. But inwardly, what is the desire of his heart? What has he prayed for time and time again with his wife? I guarantee he's been praying for this child for years. Father, give us a child. But after years and years of praying this, I'm assuming by the time that she was, she was well advanced in age and he was well advanced in age, that prayer probably started to diminish. By this point, I'm assuming that he had kind of given up hope that God would give them a son. But ironically, God is about to answer his prayer, both his outward prayer for the redemption of Israel and the prayer of his heart that he prayed multiple times to have this child. God, in one fell swoop, is about to answer both prayers here in our text because this child, John, that they're about to have, this is the one, this is the forerunner of Jesus Christ. The Messiah is coming. And Zechariah plays a major role in this whole story See, God is interrupting the biggest moment of Zechariah's life with some even bigger news. And how does Zechariah respond? Well, we're going to see in a second. But first, we're going to look and see what the angel reveals about this child. What's the significance of this child? The angel says this, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, and he'll be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children to Israel, to the Lord, to their God. And 
He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Number four, we see the dividend. What blessing and reward will come from this child? Well, it says that John's birth would bring joy and gladness to Zechariah. Many would rejoice. John is described as this incredible gift for the nation of Israel. But notice what also it says. It says that he's to abstain from alcohol, strong drink, significant. We see this with Nazarites in the Old Testament. It says he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb. Essentially, this is a way of saying John is going to be set apart. He's going to be set apart to serve the Lord. And in fact, if you know the whole story of John the Baptist, you know, he was definitely set apart. This dude was a little different, right? He went in the wilderness for 30 years, ate bugs and honey. That's different. God set him apart for his purposes. But notice what's significant about this passage. The angel says, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Where is this verse coming from? What do we just see at the very end of the Old Testament? What was the promise that God was giving, this strange promise? It's coming from the book of Malachi. God said that he was going to send Elijah to come to Israel, to turn the hearts of the people, to prepare them, to get, get them ready for the Lord. And we see that John is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's fulfilling this promise to make way and prepare the people for the coming Messiah. And so this angel is making a huge declaration to Zechariah about God's faithfulness to his promises. And now we're going to see, unfortunately, how Zechariah responds here. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife has advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Number five, we're going to see here the disbelief. Disbelief. See, the greatest day of this man's career, God invades Zechariah's life with an incredible gift. God declares, God has declared a radical plan of good news for Zechariah that flips everything upside down. God has declared this radical plan of good news that flips everything upside down. And how does Zechariah respond to this? I don't believe that. I can't believe that. God, that's impossible. We've tried for years. We've prayed for years. My wife can't bear children. We're too old. God, this is impossible for you to deliver on this promise. You see, even though Zechariah was a godly man, even though he was obedient, this message was too good to be true for him. He and Elizabeth had prayed for this, longed for this, desired this for so long, and in his mind, that ship had already sailed. Zechariah had settled on his own plan. He was diligently focused on carrying out everything according to his way and the way that he expected, and there was no room for surprises anymore. No room for the miraculous. No room for God's plan. Beloved, sometimes we're like Zechariah, aren't we? We're prone to fix ourselves, to fixate ourselves on our own plans, our own dreams, our own future. We fervently look for that dream spouse, that dream job. We look for that dream house or try to, to completely pursue our own plans and we completely ignore the fact that God may have a better plan for our life. We can never doubt God. 
We can never doubt his ability to do the impossible. The psalmist says this, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday would in this past, or as a watch in the night. I mean, there is nothing too great for our God, beloved. There is nothing that God can't accomplish. And so Zechariah, he responds with disbelief at God's good news that he has declared to him, that this angel is saying that he is going to have a son and he is going to fulfill God's plan. And so how does God respond? He silences Zechariah and says, you will be silent until this is fully fulfilled. And so look what happens next now. Verses 21 through 23. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he had kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when, his, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Number six, we see the delay. The delay. Normally, this task of offering the incense, this is something that took place pretty quickly. The priest would go in, he would dump out the incense, he would light it on fire, smoke would go up, he'd pray, he'd bow, he'd walk out. He'd actually walk out backwards just to make sure he didn't do anything he wasn't supposed to. The people would kind of pray out there and wait for him to come out and take a sigh of relief. Oh, he made it. That was the normal protocol. But after Zechariah is in there for a while and nobody sees what's going on inside this temple, they start to get a little worried. Maybe this guy dropped dead. Maybe he messed something up. Are we all in trouble? What's going to happen? And the anticipation is there. They're wondering what's taking so long. And eventually when he comes out, they realize something did happen. He's trying to sign to them. He's mute. He can't communicate. And they realize he must have had a vision. So at the end of the week, Zechariah returns home. And now we're going to read the last section before we start to wrap things up. Let's look at verses 24 through 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So number seven, we see the delivery. Here God, we see he has fulfilled what he promised. The angel delivers in the promise that he gave to Zechariah. Elizabeth conceives a son. A little later we see the birth of John the Baptist. This is later on in chapter one. And after John is born, Zechariah, he's finally able to talk again and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he utters this incredible prophecy that God is going to bring salvation on Israel through what he's just done. And so for 400 years, this silence is now broken because we see this forerunner is coming. This fulfillment of this promise, the one that was promised in Malachi that Elijah was going to come and return and turn the hearts of the people toward God and make way this path. This is now being fulfilled in John the Baptist. God has ended this silence and wife. They have this child. They're happy. Everything's good. But before we close, I just want to move back just a little bit. I want to go back to that response. This whole series is focusing on the response to the message from the angels. Zechariah's initial response after hearing this message is what? He doubts God. It's disbelief. As I mentioned earlier, God declared a radical plan of good news for Zechariah that would flip everything upside down. And after hearing this good news, Zechariah responds in disbelief. And what I want us to see this morning is that even though this message was given to some old dude 2,000 years ago who was in a temple, it's just as important for us 
as well. Despite your greatest dreams and ambitions and aspirations, despite whatever career path or projected future you anticipate for yourself, God has a radical plan of good news for your life that flips everything upside down. He has an incredible plan. In love, God gave his son, his only son, Jesus Christ, who never did anything wrong. He was crucified for us. The sin of the world was poured out upon him after shedding his blood. He gave up his spirit to death. And after three days, God raised him from the dead to life everlasting. And this radical plan of good news, this gospel, is that through repentance, through changing your thinking and turning from sin, and faith alone in Jesus Christ, we can find salvation and forgiveness and life everlasting as well. This is amazing news. This new life that God offers us in Christ, it changes everything. It gives us a new direction, a new future, a new plan for a life. It's no longer about what, what I want and what I'm doing and my plan. It's about what Christ's plan is for me. So don't get so wrapped up in your own plans that there's no room for God. Don't get so hung up on whatever it is you've mapped out for your life, whatever conclusion you've drawn based on your circumstances, don't get so hung up on that because God has a radical plan of good news for your life that flips everything upside down. Do you believe that? Do you believe the gospel is good news for you this morning? You may not be standing in a temple, but in your mind and heart, as you hear this incredible message of good news, are you willing to respond in faith? This goes two ways. If you're an unbeliever this morning, if you've come here, maybe you're just checking things out with church, maybe you go, this is all kind of new. don't really know everything that's going on here, but I'm, I'm hearing this. I'm, I'm hearing there's good news for me, and I want to respond to that. I want to receive forgiveness. I want to receive new life. So for you, this is a new thing. This is a transformation. And so on, on one end... This radical plan, maybe this good news is an opportunity for you to respond in faith. Trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, if you're a Christian this morning and you're here, maybe you've heard me or other people talk about this good news a lot. And this good news has kind of become an old news for you. But have you basked in the gospel lately and thought through the significance of what Christ has demanded in your life? Have you really wrestled and, and, and thought through the significance of what it means to be aligned to Christ because maybe you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, but you've kind of been the, the one that's planned your own future or your own life. The significance of the fact that you're connected to Jesus doesn't really impact the way that you're living or what you're doing or how you're spending your money or where you're going or the way you treat your family or the people around you. It really doesn't impact anything. But is that the call that Christ has given us? The gospel is good news that changes things. Your life needs to be living consistent with the truth of Jesus Christ. This impacts how you give, how you serve, who you love, and, and how you treat other people. It should change, yeah, I want to trust in him. Or whether you know Christ, and you go, yeah, I want to believe this good news in such a way that I want to have faith and respond in such a way that I'm going to change and transform the way I'm living. It's not about me anymore. Do you believe that God can do the impossible in your life? Do you believe that? Do you believe he has a radical plan of good news for your life that flips everything upside down? Because if you do, you, like Zechariah, will be able to open your mouth and proclaim the greatness of God. Zechariah began his amazing proclamation song by saying this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, 
For he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the good news of the gospel, Father. And we praise you this morning that the gospel saves. I pray that today that through this message that we would consider the reality, Father, that you have a message for us, an incredible message of good news. That you have brought redemption to your people through Jesus Christ. And Father, I just pray that you would soften hearts this morning, that you, by the power of your spirit, would draw people to yourself, that they would hear this, Father, and they would go, you know what? I've been living for myself, and and I want to trust in you, Father, and I want to give my life to your son, Jesus Christ, and, and rest and trust in the fact that what he has accomplished for me is more than what I could accomplish on my own. Father, I pray that people would respond in faith this morning. And for those of us who've been living like this good news is old news, Father, I pray that you would just challenge us this morning. That we would be transformed by your gospel, that it would impact every aspect of of the way we live, and that, Father, we would believe in the impossible, that, Father, that you can use us for your glory in ways that we never thought imaginable. I praise you, Father, for this amazing message, and I just thank you for this season, Father, that we can celebrate the greatest gift, your Son, Jesus Christ. So we give this time to you. In the precious name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.